covenant with the nation of Israel. So you can kind of think of a covenant as a constitution. So he's putting together the constitution of the nation of Israel. So it's describing what life in, in, under God's kingdom, what life under God's rule is meant to be like. So two weeks ago, we covered the Ten Commandments, which sort of summarizes the law. Uh, last week, we, we did the laws pertaining to love of God, and this week we're doing the laws that have to do with love of neighbor. So I'm going to approach this in a similar way to last week. Last week, when we did the laws about loving God, rather than individually going through each law, I sort of bundled them into uh, under umbrellas, under principles. I'm going to do the same thing again this week. So these laws that we're going to be looking at today, they were given to Israel to order their lives. And many of the laws that you're going to read in the book of Exodus don't apply uh, to us in the same way. For, for the very simple fact that most of us are not raising oxen, um, indentured servitude is not, you know, a way that we handle problems in our society anymore. And so a lot of these laws seem very irrelevant to us. But I want to challenge us to, to still approach these laws as the word of God because it's exactly what they are. And they actually have quite a lot to communicate to us. So here's, here's how I'd like us to, to think about this. So when I was very, very young, I, I imagine, just because most three and four year olds did this, I imagine I snatched toys out of my younger brother's hands when he was an infant, right? I just, I can safely assume that I did that. And my parents, because they were good parents, they told me not to do that. Now, it would not take long for that law in our household to become irrelevant, right? Because I just would have eventually reached an age where I'm not snatching toys out of my brother's hands. In fact, he's probably, after a certain point, not really playing with toys anymore, you know? And so that law would become irrelevant. Instead, what, what might be more relevant to me in those later years would be like, Mike, treat your younger brother like he's a human being. Don't talk to him in that way, or, you know, don't be rude to him, uh, or, or whatever it was that, that I was doing. Now, I could look back on that first rule and say, oh, man, I guess there was nothing to that, or there's nothing for me there any longer, but I'd actually be very mistaken, because the truth is that both the rule of the household, the law, to not take toys from my brother's hands, and the later rule to not talk to him like he's an ingrate, um, they both come from the same principle, which is that Tom is my brother, and I am to love him. Tom is my brother. He has dignity and value, and I'm supposed to treat him as though he does. I'm supposed to treat him according to that truth. And so both the first law, which very quickly, by, you know, by the age of however old, um, that first law becomes you know, not as relevant to me, but both the first law and the second law, both are communicating the same principle. And really, if I had been a conscientious child and able to appreciate uh, just what it was that my parents were, were after, I could have actually paused and thought about what would it be like if these laws were followed? What sort of a home would this, would this be like? And I'd be able to realize that it was a very beautiful home. And anybody who's heard, who's heard me talk about my parents and how they, the job that they did as parents knows that it really was a beautiful home, that they, they made a great place for, for Tom and I to grow up in. And it was because of these laws these these principles now these principles looked different they were applied differently at different times but that doesn't mean there's nothing for me to learn from looking back at that first rule that's how i want us to look at the law laws about what to do if your ox accidentally gores somebody else's ox is not going to be very relevant to us and yet 
behind it is absolutely a principle that is operating to this day. The laws that we're encountering today are not meaningless. These laws kept the poets of Israel up at night because of their beauty. And the reason why wasn't just because they had a way to get justice if someone's ox gored their ox. I'm I'm sure they appreciated that. But that wasn't why they were kept up at night. They were kept up by what the law showed them about God and what the law showed them about God's kingdom. They were kept up by a vision of what the city would be like if the law of God were followed entirely and they recognized that that city would be heavenly. The law is important for Christians. Christ himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we need to appreciate the law. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at, 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 at these laws today that describe the heavenly city. It describes God's kingdom. And so it matters for our church. But also, these laws tell us a lot about how society as a whole ought to be ordered. Right? So the, these laws tell us something about how society itself should be ordered. So Jesus is absolutely political. The Bible is absolutely political. It just isn't partisan. And there's a big difference between those two things. I think it's it's very difficult at times for Americans to think clearly about politics because so much of what we've come to believe gets filtered through partisan thinking, not political thinking, and they are very different ways of thinking. So partisan thinking will side with your favored party at every turn. Like, I'm sure that you know, and it's very predictable, right? So I'm sure that you may know people like this where, you know, like an event will happen or a news item will happen. You'll wonder, I wonder how so-and-so is thinking about this. I know how I'll figure that out. I'll check the Washington Post Twitter feed and I'll know exactly how he's thinking about it, right? I don't, I don't have to text him. I just have to look at the Twitter feed from a particular news source that I know leans toward his party a little bit, and I'll be able to predict entirely what he thinks. So with partisan thinking, you end up thinking in a predictable way. When you think in a partisan way, oftentimes you stop thinking. And as a Christian, what ends up happening is you find ways of sort of baptizing the views of your favorite party. That's partisan thinking. Now, in our political system, which is a two-party system, some sort of party affiliation is inevitable, right? Like parties are sort of just buckets where we can dump a bunch of our principles into and you sort of vote in a way that you think will move the ball further down court, right? It's not going to be perfect. That's not what the party is there for. But hopefully you can bundle enough of your principles under this particular party and the ball will get pushed forward a little bit. So some sort of party affiliation is inevitable, right? At least it might change over the course of your life, you know, depending on, on what the... The party stance is on this or that issue, but some sort of party affiliation is, is inevitable, at least when it comes to voting. But there are ways to be thoughtful about it. There are ways to think politically from the scriptures without thinking in a partisan way. And the best way is to solidify your principles first. So before you even approach the parties, know what you think. Don't let the parties determine what you think or their favorite news media outlets, both of which are kind of caricature. Solidify your principles first. So you solidify your principles based on scripture. If you, if you have the time, you can 
base them on, on further research in other books or political philosophy or whatever, and then figure out which party can sort of bundle enough of those principles together, and then your vote becomes sort of just a, a very pragmatic strategy, right? I'm going to vote for this guy, not because I love him, but because this will move the ball forward downfield for me. And spoiler alert, if you do it this way, you will always have something to complain about. You know, and but that's a sign that you're doing it right. If you always have something to complain about with the person you're voting for, you're doing it right. So how do you solidify those principles? There's lots of different issues out there. It requires a lot of study. And, and studying you know, other books is a great way to tackle it, but it, you got to have the time, which is very hard. Uh, so a great place to start with solidifying those principles is the laws of the Bible. Because in the laws of the Bible, you have this vision into how God ordered society. Now, of course, it was 4,000 years ago with a nomadic tribe that eventually settled into, like, an agrarian society. So there's big differences. It's not a simple one-to-one transfer. But you are being given a vision into how God ordered society. So for us as Christians, the Bible should actually be the first place we start when it comes to solidifying our principles politically. So just in time for the election... Today I'm going to be looking at five principles for the ordering of society. All these are principles coming out of the laws for love of neighbor from the book of Exodus. We're going to look at five principles for the ordering of society. You're going to notice very rapidly that neither uh, typical party platform totally bundles all these together. But I, but I do think that this gives us a starting position where we're able to to look out and identify, all right, this is how I can vote strategically. And I am not going to come down on either side. At no point will I recommend a party. At no point will I recommend a candidate. I, I don't really think that that's the place of the pulpit to, to be partisan. I do absolutely think that the pulpit is political, though. And so today will be a political sermon. It will not be partisan, though. So don't worry, I'm not going to endorse anybody. But here are five principles for the ordering of society from the book of Exodus. The first principle, people are to be honored above all earthly things. People are to be honored above all earthly things. So there's going to be a a rapid objection to this by anybody who's who's read the laws. They're going to say, how can that possibly be a principle enshrined in the biblical law when the biblical law supports slavery? So in Exodus, there are lots of laws around slavery. So there's a common objection that you'll hear, and it's important that we consider this. So our country to this day is still suffering from a great national wound, and that national wound is is a result of our history of slavery and Jim Crow. Here in the United States, slavery took a brutal form, so it was chattel slavery, so uh, just meaning that uh, people were seen as as totally property. There was even a a law describing uh, slaves as being three-fifths of a person, so that that would easily fall into the category of chattel slavery. Not not only that, it it was often violent, and it was the sort of relatively new innovation that, that America introduced was, uh, well, really the, the European slave trade as well, was, was basing slavery arbitrarily on the color of skin. And so that has left our country with a still festering national wound that has not healed entirely. Does the Bible support that? So the first thing to recognize is that words mean different things at different times. So slavery of some kind or another has been an institution throughout all of human history and across the globe for as long as humans have been recording history. But does the word slavery always refer to the same thing? Does it always refer to brutal chattel slavery, like what we saw in in the United States? The the short answer is no. 
Slavery at different times has looked that brutal. In fact, the Israelites suffered under brutal chattel slavery uh, that was ethnically based in Egypt. So it does happen and has happened in the ancient Near East. But the institution that, that Israel had was not that. So a good way to think about uh, slavery in Israel um, is almost like someone signing up for the military. So one commentator brings this up, that slavery in Israel was not permanent unless the slave opted for it to be permanent. There were some exceptions to that, but few. And it was it was often a result of somebody coming out of a, a position of material poverty, right? And so they would sign up to um, get their bed and board and, and a certain amount of pay from an owner, and they would give something like six years to them. In exchange, on the seventh year, they would go free. So it was way more like signing up for a term in the military than it was like southern chattel slavery. In fact, uh, in comparison to the rest of the ancient Near East, where, again, there were brutal, horrible chattel slavery sorts of things going on, the slave laws in Israel are actually pretty humanitarian. So there were protections for runaway slaves. If a slave is running away, there's probably a reason. So you you don't return a runaway. There were protections for slaves that they were like harmed by an owner. There was corporal punishment. That's, that's just a fact of the ancient Near East. But if there was actual abuse, if that corporal punishment turned into harm, then the slave went free. Slaves are not permanently slaves unless they opt in for that. Otherwise, they go free after, after a set time period. In fact, the impression that you get from the laws on slavery is that uh, – in Israel, slavery is still seen as this unfortunate institution. It's one where you have to protect against abuse, but it's also an institution that that helps both the owner and the slave. Again, that sounds terrible, but only because we're coming at it from our lens as Americans. Our kind of slavery, the one that happened here, is not the same thing as what happened in ancient Israel. That's really important for us to remember. And so slavery in Scripture needs to be understood in its context. And there's still going to be some in the 21st century who will insist that, well, if the law was really good, it would abolish all slavery. Uh, again, I'm opposing this because of the word slavery, not because of the actual meaning of that word in, the, in Israel. But whatever, the law should have abolished it, uh, to which my very short answer is just, that's easy for us to say. So... That's it on slavery. That's what I'm going to say on, on, on that matter. The reality is that when you look at the law, there is nothing held in higher esteem, aside from God himself, there's nothing held in higher esteem than people. The law of Israel was uniquely pro-human. Here's where you see it. So if you kill, if you take a human life, you can, so you, when you look at laws, you can tell what's protected and what's valued by what gets penalized, right? A penalty is a protection. So look and see what, where the death penalty comes into play in Israel. It comes into play if you kill someone. It never comes into play if you damage property. So in Israel, if you take a life, you will be killed for it. It's a high penalty But that's because the thing damaged here, the thing trespassed on here, is the thing of highest value, and the law does not hold anything else aside from God himself with that kind of value. There was no death penalty for property-related damages or theft. People were more important than property. So, for instance, if an animal killed 
another person's animal, the owner would get restitution. But if there was an animal that had already been violent and, and killed a person as a result of negligence and then kills an, an additional person, uh, the owner will die with the animal. There were no graduated penalties for social status. What that means is that, so if you look at the code of Hammurabi, he starts his code saying how, you know, he's he's doing this for the widow and the orphan. That was sort of a catch-all phrase in the ancient Near East. So he's doing this for the widow and the orphan. He's an advocate for them. And you look at his laws, and lo and behold, uh, if a rich person commits murder, he has to pay a fine. And yet, if one of those materially impoverished people, the widows and the orphans, if they commit murder, they die. They don't just pay a fine. They die. Why is that? Because they're poor. We can't afford to to lose the rich. We'll kill off the poor, though, because they need to be kept in their place. So Hammurabi talked a big game in the introduction, in the the preamble to his code, but he didn't live up to it. In the, the, the Israelite code, in the law of God, there is no penalty... Uh, that's sort of catered to a social status. Everybody is equal under the law. The other thing that you see is that there's no uh, what's called vicarious punishment. So, for instance, if a parent does something, their children's do not, children do not get punished for that, right? The, the, because that ch- child is still protected. Their life is protected under the law. And so the person who commits the crime gets held responsible. There's no rolling generational guilt in the law of Moses. It also avoids brutal or, or uh, multiple punishments for, for different crimes. So again, uh, if you uh, damage someone else's property, you're not going to lose a hand, right? That's not how they, they did things, because that would be an infringement on human life in exchange for damaged property, whereas in, in the other laws of the ancient Near East, you steal something, you get your hand cut off, get your tongue cut off, stuff like that. You don't see that in the Israelite code. And the reason why is because humans are of the highest value. So the law will never imply that there's anything more important than human life. It's a highly humanitarian law code. And it stands out basically with no equal in the ancient Near East. Not that everything was as bad as Hammurabi's code, but nothing is as humanitarian as the law of God. So aside from God himself, the most enshrined, the most honored, the most valued thing under his rule, are people. Second principle is that there is no favoritism. Again, I touched on this already, but I want to draw special attention to it. This was profoundly rare at the time. Social status defined all kinds of things about you. It determined your life in so many ways, but not in the Hebrew law. So you uh, you see this in a number of places, but particularly in the in the laws having to do with false witness at the beginning of, of chapter 23 in Exodus. So what, what basically the Israelites are told that if they're reporting on someone, so especially this would be like like a, a witness in a law court or if someone's acting as a judge, this law would apply to them, where it's it's instructing them in who they should side with, who should you side with, who should you advocate for, and basically the law tells them that you can't play favorites at all. You can't play favorites on either side. So the temptation when you're acting as a judge or acting as a witness, the temptation would be either to side with people who will sort of socially reward you or to side with people who can't really socially reward you. Uh, you'll, you'll get a benefit, a social benefit from the other one. You'll get sort of a, a, a moral, I feel good about myself benefit from the other. So the law specifically mentions the mob. You will not side with the mob just because they're loud. 
And nor, interestingly enough, and this one is surprising, especially when you get to the third principle, uh, which is about the poor and the vulnerable being protected, um, you're also not allowed to side with the poor just because they're poor. So you can't side with those who will give you a social benefit for siding with them, and you can't even side with those who can't give you anything in return. You just accept the facts of the case as the facts, and justice must be done accordingly with no favoritism. There's no such thing as an activist court in Israel. There's no preference given to a narrative, even if, overall, the narrative is true. Each case is taken on its own terms. So you see this again when you see the law about escaped animals. So just like now, there might have been a neighbor in Israel that you didn't appreciate so much. So just pulling this uh, out of thin air, but let's just say there's a neighbor that you have that calls the homeowners association to complain about the sound of the, your children's laughter outside. And you feel a certain way now about that neighbor and maybe one or two of their sheep get out, right? It would be tempting to see those sheep uh, walking away from the property, and you just say, tough luck. But the law actually makes a point of saying that Israelites must return animals, and you even have to do it if you don't like the person. <laughs> you even have to return the animals to your enemy because the law doesn't play, play favorites. Humans are of immense value, even your enemy. And so you will act with no favoritism. You will return animals. You will seek the good even of your enemies. So already you're seeing the germ of Jesus's, uh, Jesus's instruction that we should love our enemies and pray for them. Favoritism shows up in churches far too often. Sometimes it's elders who are a little bit more reserved when it comes to rebuking people if those people are big tithers. That's something that's happened quite a lot. It's easier to risk offending someone who won't affect uh, the next fiscal year. But elders are here to rebuke when the time comes. That's part of what, what shepherding is. Favoritism, in this case, hurts congregants. Like, you, you do not want elders who will base their, their posture toward you on the amount of money you give. You do not want that. Because you could have elders that are smiling and approving of you as you go to hell. It is not for your good to have elders who play favorites. But it also happened in churches too as congregants sort of gravitate to people who seem more like them, more connected, more cool, more whatever the, the whatever it is that makes you uh, gravitate towards someone. It can happen in churches too where congregants... Um, play a kind of favoritism. And a good remedy for favoritism in the church, uh, or even just the appearance of favoritism, because maybe there's not actually something real going on in your heart, it's just sort of a social habit, a good remedy to favoritism in a church is just zealous welcoming. Zealous welcoming. Welcome aggressively. Certainly welcome the people that you know, the people that you're comfortable with, the people that you like, but also welcome aggressively the people that you don't know. The people who, who, who seem like someone that you wouldn't normally hang out with. Welcome aggressively, and you will avoid favoritism. So may Trinity be a welcoming, embracing place, even if it's totally awkward, because obedience to God often is. All right, so that's the second principle, no favoritism. The third principle is 
We care for the vulnerable. So this, perhaps more than anything else, sets apart God's law from the laws of its time. So other law codes claimed to care for the poor and the vulnerable. So I I talked about earlier about the, the code of Hammurabi, but they rarely lived up to that, right? That's not the case here with Israel. But it's not just what the it's not just that the poor uh, don't get punished more aggressively. It's that there are specific protections. The law actively orders protections for the materially poor. So here's a few examples. So um, immigrants, or what oftentimes your Bibles will sometimes say, aliens or sojourners. So immigrants are given protections. They don't share the same rights as the rest of of the Israelites. So, for instance, they can't take part in the Passover unless they assimilate fully into the nation. But they do have protections. The Israelites will remember immigrants precisely because their ancestors immigrated out of Egypt. So God will literally give the reason, hey, you ought to seek to take care of the immigrant because your ancestors were immigrants. And so that's the reason that they're given. They're supposed to remember that experience even if they weren't the one who uh, underwent it themselves. Justice will not be withheld from someone who cannot repay you. So that's another example. Every seventh year, all fields will be left unharvested, and all that produce will go to the poor. And so people who have big farms, they're meant to be storing away food for themselves so that in their seventh year they can leave the land unharvested and the produce will go to the poor. So the poor will have to do the harvesting, They will have to harvest the land. They'll do the work, but the crops will be supplied through the others in the society. If a poor person comes to you for a loan, you cannot charge interest. If you borrow an item from a neighbor who's in need, you will return it on the same day because he might need it. So, and we already mentioned the protections for slaves. So all these are examples of ways in which in which the law is actively seeking to protect the vulnerable in society. So the idea is that for many of the people in, in Israel's society, the system is going to work fine, right? The, the, they will have enough opportunity and skill and whatever uh, to survive through the markets. They'll be able to trade. They'll be able to, to do what they need to do to survive. But for others, they're at a vulnerable enough place. Let me shuffle my papers here. They're at a vulnerable enough place that they're functionally boxed out of society because they don't have all that opportunity. They don't have all that skill. And it's not that the market is inherently evil, right? That's not the conclusion that the law comes to. Markets have been with humanity forever. It's not that the market is inherently against them. Poverty is complicated. But it also doesn't mean, so just, just, you know, so I say that, that the market isn't evil, it's not inherently bad, but that doesn't mean that everybody is able to take advantage of it in the same way. So oftentimes there's this phrase that gets tossed around about those who are materially poor, where we have this perception like, well, isn't what they need to do, don't they just need to work harder? If they just work harder, then it'll be fine, right? If you're poor, it's because you're lazy. If that were the case, then God would not be legislating in the Bible for the society to protect the vulnerable, If all they needed to do was just work harder and stop being lazy, then there wouldn't be these laws. Poverty is complicated. You're dealing with with groups of people sometimes who are 
almost entirely unskilled. And we, we, we lose sight of, of the, the sorts of skills that we take for granted that are not commonplace. And so the, the whole nation is ordered so that those in poverty might find a means of surviving. Now here's the difference with how we often go about this in our society, and there's plenty of reasons for this. For instance, huge population, government bureaucracy, how else are you going to do it? These sorts of things. But in our current situation, the materially poor rarely participate in the process. Right? So they're helped, but they don't, there's no expectation of participation. And so in Israel, though, you see something different. You see the society ordered to help them, but the goal is to get them into a position where they can help themselves. So they'll leave all the crops unharvested in the seventh year, but it will be the materially poor who harvest the crops. So if they, if they're in, in such amount of debt that they, that they need a, a, a much more extreme solution, they'll work for an owner as an indentured slave for six years or so. And then hopefully by that point they'll, they'll, they'll be in a position where they can go out, take their pay from the owner and then establish themselves. So the, the nation is ordered to help the vulnerable. And they may never become wealthy, but that's not really the point of, of the help. The point is for, for, uh, for them to be protected, for them to not be forgotten, and for them to get to a position where they are able to establish themselves financially and establish themselves in the markets. So incidentally, this is actually the principle that informs uh, the philosophy of Love, Inc., the organization that we partner with here at the church. Where, um, they're, they're over in Waukegan. Uh, I happened to, to work there for about three years. But we're very blessed by their example and, and by the work that they do. Uh, you know, once a month we deliver furnitures to families in need over there. There's also the New Hope Ministry, which is literally based directly out of these laws. I mean, if you read the, the materials about their, their philosophy of how, why they help the way they help over at Love, Inc., it comes out of these texts. They're trying to be faithful to, to this sort of philosophy of service. If you want to take part in that, uh, Everett, uh, Metters is one to reach out to for the furniture ministry, and Jerry and Debbie Hensley would be those to reach out to for uh, for the mentorship New Hope ministry. So moving on, I'm going to tackle the next two principles a little bit quickly. The next two principles have more to do with, with property and with markets. So people are economic creatures. The market matters to God. Things matter to God because he made things, right? He's the source of things, so they matter to God. So the fourth principle is that we value human life, and so we value human livelihood. We value human life, and because of that, we value human livelihood. So there are a whole handful of laws that talk about property, and property is not valued at the same rate as as human life, but it is absolutely valued and protected. So if one man man's animal kills another, he gets restitution. If something is stolen, it has to be returned, and restitution has to be given. If Sally Brown spends Halloween night in the pumpkin patch with Linus instead of trick-or-treating, she can demand restitution for her lost candy. Does anybody watch that movie anymore? Yeah, come on! I demand restitution! Uh, this is off topic, but... Um, this is what happens when I go off the manuscript. Uh, I manuscript almost every word. So, uh, but lately, Lydia, my my daughter, who if you have not met her, she is a firecracker. Uh, she 
recently saw the Charlie Brown Halloween, and um, lately she'll walk into a room, um, as she does sometimes just sort of sidling in, and then startle Ashley and I by saying, if you hold my hand, I'll slug you, which is what Sally says, the lioness in the pumpkin patch. Uh, it's, uh, it's startling and aggressive. I feel unsafe in my own home. Uh, so it's clear that the law values property. So you can't be killed for property damage, but there are protections for what people own and for what they use for their livelihood. So for instance... I'm going to give an example from one of the slavery laws. And again, remember, this is not the same thing as Southern slavery. But uh, there's one law in, in, the, in the scriptures that, that talks about, all right, so what if a man takes on a slave? He, you know, maybe the slave owner already has a, a, a woman who's also working on his property, and the man marries her. Uh, but the man gets out of his term or buys himself out first. Um, he can either stay with the, his wife but if he chooses to leave, the wife cannot go with him. And at first we're like, clutch your pearls, right? This sounds terrible. When really, again, we understand slavery to be a temporary thing. So he's, he's leaving his wife behind until he can either buy her or until her term expires. But it is absolutely a law that has to do with, A, protecting her, um, because part of why she's a slave is to gain the benefits of protection under the owner. But it, it is also to protect the owner's livelihood, that he's, he's paying out for a particular amount of employed service, right? Like It's like you know signing up for a term in the military. Um, and so there are these laws that, that protect livelihood in the scriptures. And it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a false dichotomy to say, well, the law values human life and therefore not livelihood. Those things aren't separable. They aren't separable if you're thinking through it. So the law is protecting the business of the owner, which means that God values trade. So in the scriptures, money and wealth, they're seen as dangerous, but that doesn't mean they're seen as bad. Business and entrepreneurship and markets and wealth, they matter. Just try to get from page one of Proverbs to the end of Proverbs without having a different perspective. The Bible values markets. Wealth doesn't inevitably compromise a person. Greed compromises a person. To whom much is given, much is required. But skill and competence at business should be actually valued among God's people. We should value competence. We should value skill when it comes to business and wealth production and all these things. In fact, I really think that that um, a, a unique way to approach men's ministry in our time would be to, to use men's, men's ministry as a way of disseminating principles of skill and 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 competence in in business. And I think all that's just a natural conclusion that you get from these laws about property and livelihood. It's this principle that informs so much of the wisdom literature in the Bible. Uh, again, especially Proverbs. So one more principle going pretty fast now, uh responsibility is expected. Responsibility is expected. Humans are made to be responsible. You see this as early as Genesis 2. We're made for work. We're made for productivity. We are made to develop things and to put our hands to something. And we derive a sense of purpose and meaning from, from our ability to get a return on our labor, to put our hands to something and get a return from it. That, that, you know, is a, is a source of purpose for us. And, and, and really, I think, I can't, I don't have time to go into this right now, but the nature of true freedom, freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. 
Freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. When I was a child, I had very little responsibility, but I was not free. As an adult, I have way more responsibility. I also have way more freedom. The Bible puts responsibility on people. In fact, the law enshrines responsibility. So a couple examples of where you see this. Um, Again, we already mentioned how neighbors in need will participate in their own help, but it's also interesting to look at uh, when when a person is penalized. So, for instance, if someone digs a hole, they're supposed to cover it, but there's no penalty associated with covering the hole unless someone falls in it. If someone falls in the hole, then you're responsible for whatever happened to that person when they fell. But you're you're not penalized for not covering the hole. So, in other words, it, it expects the person to take responsibility. It won't penalize them. It will not parent them into covering the hole. There's no regulatory fines associated with it. But if somebody gets hurt because of their negligence, they will be punished. So there's guidance, but to call it regulation is not exactly accurate. I had a couple other examples. Uh, I do not have time for them. Um, but you can look them up. Uh, look up ox-goring laws, animals harming each other, and then later in the law, the parapet around the roof. There you go. I'm sure that's helpful. All right, so as Christians, I think we should approach the political parties looking for whatever party most embodies principles so people will be honored. Uh, I think, again, a natural conclusion from that particular principle is that Christians should be fiercely pro-life. And right now, obviously, the definition of what pro-life is is sort of undergoing a rhetorical bait-and-switch. I mean, we should be against the killing of babies in the womb. Also, we should be for the vulnerable. We should be actively engaged in helping the poor. Favoritism should have no place among us. Equality under the law. No activist court, no whatever. We value human life, so we value human livelihood. We, We have an interest in the markets. Responsibility is expected of us. And we should want the law to give us the freedom to be responsible, because that is the nature of true freedom. So we want these principles to be enshrined in our government. They are toward the good ordering of society. And so you basically just find whatever way you ought to vote in order to move the ball forward on whatever principles you're finding in the scriptures. But when you start from these principles, that way you don't get brainwashed by Twitter algorithms or by the recommended next bar on YouTube. You're shaped by the principles first. And when it comes to voting, you end up becoming totally mercenary. Right? I have voted for most parties. (laughs) You know, you just, you're totally mercenary because you're just looking for what's going to move the ball forward on, on your particular, particular principle. Now, I want to pray right now and I want to pray specifically for our country as we go into this election because it's, um, it's a grim one in, in many ways. Lord Jesus, we, we need you. Lord God, what we desire most of all is that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done. That is what we want. So God, I pray that you would free us from partisanship, but that you would also show us the way to be political creatures so that we can promote the ordering of our society in a way that reflects your rule. And God, um, who are we when we only represent one vote? 
It is so easy right now to feel utterly powerless going into this election. And it feels like there's a lot riding on it. And it feels like we are just on a hair trigger as a society. God, I pray that you would have mercy. That whatever the outcome, it would be toward um, your kingdom being made more visible in the ordering of our society. Whatever the outcome. And God, I pray that you would prevent social unrest. I pray that you would pave a way for unity. That the church would be um, a place where, where partisanship has no home, even if we are political creatures, as we should be. May we be a vision of the kingdom of God here in our little city of Trinity Community Church and here in the little cities of our homes. God, will you cause reformation? And may it begin in, um, may it begin over meals among community groups. May it begin in the simple practice of reading creeds together and singing songs. May it happen through family devotions. May it happen through friendships among our people and through ardent prayer for renewal. Spirit, come. Reform our nation. Protect us, Lord, and let us be faithful to your name, come what may. Amen.